Hi, this is Bob Rosakis. You're listening to the Batman Family Reunion on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Welcome to the Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Paul Ken, one of your hosts, and with me, as always, is my co-host and bat cousin, Sean M. Myers. What's new, Sean? I was just hanging out with bat cousin Danny, and we were talking about how he used to work in New York City, and at the time, he worked for a cab company. How are you, Paul? I'm fine, Sean. I was just chatting to our bat cousin, Nicole. You know, the one married to the country singer. You wouldn't know it by looking at her, but man, she can pack away some hamburgers. This month, everybody, we're happy to welcome back a real-life member of my bat family. That's right, my bat brother-in-law, Todd Saren Betts, who last appeared on episode 10. Welcome, Todd. What'd you bring to the reunion this time? Well, I have to admit, I'm very embarrassed. I completely forgotten about the reunion, and <laughs> I got a call late last night that it was going on, and I didn't have a lot of time, so I, I just ran over to the Wawa and, and bought a bunch of Tasty Cakes. Oh, right. They were on <laughs> sale, about 50 cents off a box. Are they past the expiration date? A little bit past, so that was the, that was the reason why I got the discount. So it's just a little more chewing, but I did get the side eye from Grandma Millie. Apologize in advance to my bat cousins. No, we'll let you slide this time. So Sean, why don't you remind everybody what our show is all about? Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978 and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints, before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man Bat, and even the Human Target and Roy Raymond, TV detective. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman family reunion. Let's get into Detective Comics number 482, starring the Batman family. All right. The cover date was February, March, 1979, and it was released, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, on November 9th of 1978. Once again, we've got 64 pages with no ads, and it is, of course, a dollar comic. We have five all-new stories, and we see the debut of Rich Buckler as our cover artist, with inks by Dick Giordano. What do you guys think of the cover? Todd, you want to start? Sure. So the one thing I really noticed with this cover, I didn't really know who the, the cover artist was, and I didn't know it was Rich Buckler, because when I was looking at it originally, a look at Batman's face, it really looked more like a very Neil Adams-y type face. So I thought at first it may have been Neil Adams, but then of course the circles, the mm -hmm. characters in the circles don't look like Neil Adams at all. So I was a little confused. So it does make sense it's a Rich Buckler cover. I do like the cover. I do like circles. I like it when they kind of show the people who are going to be starring in the issue. And I love the ape. I never miss a cover with an ape. Yep, you put an ape on the cover, it's going to sell. How about the back cover? Again, same thing. Like It's nice to see a little synopsis of each story, like the one image for each story. I love the triangles. I love the little Batman symbol right in the middle. <laughs> so yeah, no, big fan of that. And, and obviously, again, that looks more like a Rich Yeah, Buckler, I was going uh, the back cover looks a lot more like Rich Buckler to me in the face is, I think on the Batman figure, what's throwing you is, is there's a lot of Dick Giordano influence, especially on like the face and the cow. So I see why you're confused. How about you, Sean? I like this cover. I think it's laid out really well. There's a lot going on, but it doesn't really feel crowded or cramped or anything like that. The back cover, I think, is fantastic. Like Todd said, each yeah. of them gets like a little spotlight, I guess, basically. There are two things, though, that I kind of have, I guess, maybe issues with. So on the front cover, and literally, I saw this four seconds ago, the Batman figure on the cover 
if you look at his left leg, which is behind, I don't think that really matches because you kind of see his calf and his calf is way a lot lower than it should be. And I guess he has a knee, but you don't really see evidence of it. Yeah, you're right. The knee, by basis of where the boot is, the knee should be lower, but it feels like the knee should be higher, closer to the bend of the other knee. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. The left leg looks a little, his femur is elongated too much. Yeah, and actually, even now that I, maybe I should stop looking at this card. Even his right leg, where the top of his leg goes into where his knee is compared to his calf muscle, that part looks really, really thin. Mm. And I think what's also throwing you off there too, if you look at the image with the demon, behind the demon, there's this orange shape and it looks almost like a continuation of Batman's leg. Yeah. So- yeah. It looks really, it, it really looks, you that know, like the calf is like the super calf that he's got one really good calf. Look at that. That's funny. Yeah. But the big, big problem I have with this cover is Robin. I think Robin looks horrible. I don't think he necessarily looks super old, but he doesn't look like a teenager and his mask seems like too small. But I think Batgirl, Batmite, Demon, the top half of the Batman face, and of course, Xavier, Simon, the not ultra human. I, I think all of them look fantastic. And on the back, I think all of the characters look fantastic. Mm-hmm. Those are my quibbles. I can't argue with that at all. There's lots going on. You've got all the copy and the trade dress at the top. You could be a winner in the second Superman movie contest. We talked about the first one last year, I guess it was. But I agree, the main image is pretty cool, notwithstanding some of the leg issues. We will post the image of this cover, as well as some additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Paul, remind our listeners where that is. That is fireandwaterpodcast.com. So go ahead, Sean. Let's get started on that first story. Our first story is Night of the Body Snatcher, starring Batman. It's 20 pages, written by Jim Starlin, penciled by Jim Starlin, and the inker is P. Craig Russell. Batman in Night of the Body Snatcher. You know how you're having that dream of when you're falling and right before you hit the pavement, your body jerks awake? You know how you're having that dream of when somebody's attacking you and right before they strike you, you start to yell and then wake up? You know how when you're having that dream of when your dad testified against his army buddy and then the army buddy electrocuted himself, drugged you, put his mind into that of a massive white gorilla, strapped you to a medical chair and told you that he was going to put his mind into your body and then you woke up screaming, it's all true? Sure, we've all had that happen to us several times in our lives. You're not alone, and neither is Bruce, because he's just like us. In his latest round of monologuing, Xavier tells Bruce that not only is he going to steal his body, but he's going to will all of his money to Bruce, and then not use that money to build high-rise skyscraper trees in Metropolis, Central City, or New Carthage. Oh no, he's going to stop being Batman, and indulge in wine, women, song, and in the far-flung future, auto racing. (laughs) After three panels of self-derision, Bruce tells himself he's got to get it together, girl, and then gives Starlin a chance to use all of the musculature lessons that he's learned at the Kubert School. After breaking free, trashing some machinery, and destroying Simon's old man husk of a body, Bruce says out loud that he didn't mean to, but I really believe that his inner dialogue went something like, Pop. Six. Squish. Uh Uh-uh. Cicero. Lipschitz. He had it coming. He had it coming. Well, suffice to say that you don't just destroy a mad gorilla's original body and think that you can jump out of a window scot-free. No, 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 no. Instead, you have someone more determined to see it through with you. More so than even after you're done with a free trial of Sirius XM or your car insurance warranty. After a few do-si-dos of scuffling, brawling, and vent piping, 
Xavier Simon gets the upper hand, upper paw, and hoists Batman over his head. Luckily, a few blams later, and a graceful rollover by Bruce, and Simon's last words are, ah! <laughs> a gravesite follow-up gives Gordon a chance to act like he has no idea that Bruce is Batman, and gives an Undertaker a fantastic story to tell at dinner parties for years to come. Todd, what did you think of the story? You know, now that you mentioned the whole dream thing, believe it or not, Sigmund Freud actually did write a thesis about that very dream. It's a very common <laughs> one. I would explain what it means, but this is a family-friendly podcast, so I can't <laughs> go any further than that. But I did like this story. There are a couple of things that I think are a little odd or funny, but just starting off with the splash page that gives a little synopsis of the previous part of the story, is there anything more Jim Starlin than that very top there where you got the skulls, you got the bad cape? I mean, that's just, yeah, that's, that's, very that's the stuff that I love uh, about artists like him and Todd McFarlane later on when they would put those little design elements in a story. That's one of my favorite examples of why I love comic book art so much. In general, I really enjoyed the pre-Ultra Humanite aspect of the story because Ultra Humanite was one of my favorites. And it wasn't until I, I listened to your podcast when I realized that this predated Ultra Humanite. Originally, I thought this was a bit of a rip off of that idea but actually predates it so i thought that part was great what you really want in a story like this is the battle between the gorilla and batman and we get that in spades mm -hmm. later on when they actually get outside of the lab the one thing i did see on here batman must have an arm of steel because there's this panel on page 12 at the very top of page 12 where he's fallen off of his bat line so he's probably yeah. falling about 20 30 feet onto the roof and he's squarely on one arm he lands on it so he's Again, like his calf muscle, he must have really trained that one <laughs> arm really, really well to be able to withstand that fall. The only thing that I don't love about this story is the ending with the deus ex machina. You have a security guard coming in and just the, the girl is about to beat Batman, throw him off the building, and then he gets shot by a security guard and ends the whole story. So Batman didn't solve the problem here. Security guard did. So that's the only quibble I have. But otherwise, again, it's a, kind of an outrageous story overall, as you alluded to with the whole dream sequence but very good execution very jim starlin -y. love the art love the craig russell inks mm -hmm. so all around very good read what'd you think of it paul once again xavier accounted four pages of monologuing <laughs> uh, does like to hear himself and then who would have thought he would be such a party animal that he was i'm just gonna party down with all this money the wayne money and the xavier simon treasure money there's great panels in here we talk about them as we walk through but i agree with todd about the ending it feels like he wrote himself into a corner a little bit and that was a way to get out which is fine I think it's hysterical that Batman still gets all his money <laughs> and Commissioner Gordon's like what? And so and then did you catch that on the last page there page 20 on the gravestones you've got the Xavier Simon gravestone but then above it you've got P. Craig Russell and Starlin and Al Milgram's gravestone too most appropriate of which being Al Milgram because he would have commissioned this story back in a couple few months ago I think that's horrible <laughs> I don't want to see my name when I gravestones <laughs> someone else did it well you would have liked it better on those other issues where they're on the broadway marquee that's what yes, that's where you yes, put your yeah. name. okay i got you i got yeah. you. well especially because they gave dates <laughs> <laughs> if it was well you know if you kind of obscured the date but for uh craig he's, he's due for it in 1978 yeah i'll accept a tombstone if it says like 5692 <laughs> Yeah, exactly. What do you think the mortuary people thought when they, they had to bury a big gorilla? <laughs> Next to the guy. I know what they said in one word. 
Gotham. That's <laughs> true. So I like this story. I say this often. Comics is a collaborative medium. You have the story. You have the art. This definitely is where the art carries the story. If this were a lesser artist that I won't say names, the story would just be dumb, boring, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I really like it a lot. It's just art. It's just art, 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 art. It's wonderful. Getting specifically into the story, though, I think I'm a positive person. I think I have a good outlook on life and everything. But for some reason, it feels like I'm picking apart this issue, nitty gritty, bit by bit. The very first panel is wrong. Literally, the first panel says, you are Bruce Wayne, the Batman. Your began with a death. Oh, look at that there was yeah. a typo in the first line last issue too remember is it you began with a death or your career began with a death or yeah something? and then i think there's another panel that's missing so i'll read it as it is on the page it says you are bruce wayne the batman your began with a death he was the third victim of a fiend that literally tears his prey apart I think there was supposed to be, and there is negative space under that bat logo. I think there was supposed to be another comment box saying something. I think you're right. There certainly looks like the space there for a text box. And we'll get to it a little bit later. We know these issues were probably a little bit rushed. I think they even admit that. And I think that might be a carryover mm -hmm. from that, maybe. Yeah. Now, granted, I do kind of think there was a nitpicky issue. Hey, if you can't nitpick a comic book 45 years <laughs> later, then what good <laughs> What are you? What are we doing? Here? That what are we doing? Our whole life is meaningless. And get 10 minutes of a show out of it. <laughs> I guess we can try to go beat by beat, but as I have to say, there aren't a lot of beats. Yeah, what do you think of Starlin's 8? Love it, love it, love it, love it. It's very menacing, I think. He looks scary, looks menacing, looks powerful. He has a Mr. Mind voice box, so that always gets bonus <laughs> points. And even the word balloons are great because they do have that electronic edge yeah. and they're rimmed in pink. Yeah, that's pretty cool because if you look on story page five, the top, it draws attention to the fact that the word balloon is pointing towards the box. And so you get a good sense that the sounds aren't yeah. coming out of the gorilla's mouth. They're coming out of the right, yeah. voice activation box. That's mm -hmm. pretty neat. I like the sequence on six where Simon has just said that I plan to switch brains with you and I'm going to strangle you in my old body with your own hands and Bruce's face. And he goes from fear to that determination in the end. And then you see the determination as he breaks out of the straps on the next page, which is pretty neat. I like Simon's motivation because generally in this stories, you're always like, I'm going to expose your secret to the world and you're going to be finished. He's like, nope. I'm going to party arty. Yeah. <laughs> you were asking last month about where does the revenge transfer to? Remember? And so this makes sense now why he would go yeah. after Bruce because he's got a young, healthy body that he can take over. So I guess that sort of makes a little bit more sense in the context of the last issue now. Yeah, that is a really good point. My question is, didn't Simon have a lot of money already? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. If, if his goal was to live a fun, exotic life, why didn't he just do it? Because he was an, he's old, an old man. He yeah. Bruce Wayne's body. Yeah, but that's why he commissioned the scientist to do it. And then he yeah. killed the scientist. <laughs> yeah. Man, always got those blueprints. Yeah, that's right. Make sure. I think you mentioned in your, in your recap, the battle on 14 and 15. And you get this one big page of the sequence of Batman and the ape fighting. And you see how Batman's cape is torn. So I figured you like that one because it's yes. his cape is super short in this situation because it's been ripped. You would think instead of having a cape that ripped easily like that, that it would just come off. Yeah, you would think it's some kind of magnet or something that yeah if he's dangling off a cliff it would be strong enough that it would keep him there or he could just take
kick it off. Yeah. I know you guys were complaining about the security guard, but I, I like that, especially like in these days now of super infallible Batman, where he has 14 different plot devices to get him out of anything. I like that he got lucky that the security guard came up and shot the gorilla. I like that. That's a fair point. It is out of the blue. They is ex machina, as Todd indicated, but fair point. You know, I do like these stories of the not super Batman. Even his ear is bent on 18. You see Batman's on the ground kneeling and his, oh, yeah. his, his bat ear is kind of crumpled over, which is kind of neat. And Shauna, I think I would definitely see your point about the security guard. I think if it had been established that he was a character that we've already seen, right? If mm. we mm. somehow he was down in the lobby and heard noise and uh, like, what's going on? So that you kind of establish the character a little bit instead of just coming out of nowhere, then I think it would be definitely more acceptable from a storytelling point of view. Or if it was Commissioner Gordon, he could have shot. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, that would have been nice. Yeah, I like that. The Commissioner Gordon scene at the grave makes no sense. And you alluded to that. He lent his money to Wayne. What do you think of that? Batman says, oh, it was revenge. He says, what? I'll tell you someday, Commissioner. What? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Good try, Jim Starlin, but that didn't make any sense. That's all I got on this one. Uh, uh, yeah, fun. yeah. Conclusion. I agree, yeah. So let's move on to the Bat timeline. Here we're going to take a look at the other titles that were published this month and what the rest of the Batman family was doing that time. So thanks, as always, to Mike's amazing world of DC Comics. And these are comics that were on sale in November of 1970. We are going to start off with Batman number 308, and it's called There'll Be a Cold Time in the Old Town Tonight. Yeah. And of course, with a title like that, it's Mr. Freeze. This is the sleek Mr. Freeze. <laughs> he has like a big bubble helmet, and basically it looks just like any other superhero outfit. And he has Batman in a science fiction space sleeping chamber, except it's filled with ice. And Batman looks cold. He does. <laughs> the Brave and the Bold, number 147. A great Jim Aparo cover. It's Batman and Supergirl. You know, I always liked it when Jim Aparo got to draw the super characters. This is a good one. You've got Supergirl smiling. She's busting through the wall. At last, the team you've been demanding to see. Really? I could have done without that. But other than that, it's a good one. The next issue is Justice League of America, JLA number 163. The title is Concert of the Damned. Warning, plug your ears. Those who hear the music of madness die. <laughs> and you see Hulk Girl is laid out on the bottom of the cover. Red demons are flying out from this mad maestro. Superman's running in and you get a cool angle of Green Lantern flying in. You see the bottom of his boot and everything. This one definitely looks like a Rich Buckler cover. <laughs> yeah. And then the next issue is The Super Friends, number 17. And it is a story called Trapped in Two Times. And it's great because there's this huge water demon monster rising out from a body of water. Aquaman says, do something, Superman. Stop that ocean monster. Superman's trying to punch him, but it says, no use, Aquaman. I can't punch out a creature made of water. And Zan and Gleek are trying to run away. It's a cool story with a time trapper. Excellent. And the last bad appearance this month is World's Finest Comics with yet again a Jim Aparo cover. This one, I have always loved this cover. It's a wraparound mm -hmm. cover, but you've got Batman and Superman in a swamp. There's sort of this swamp demon creature. And then Batman is fighting this bat 
demon that's got a Batman-like costume on with sort of a different bat symbol. I always thought this was a neat cover because you really don't know what's going on. And you get Green Arrow, the Creeper, and Captain Marvel Shazam all in one issue. That bat symbol kind of looks like what Batman symbol is right now, doesn't it? It looks like <laughs> the one Greg Capullo did. So Todd, tell us about what you've got. This is interesting. This is one of the times when I wasn't buying a ton of comics as a little kid. So I, there's only one or two on this list that I remember actually buying. So the rest of it's pretty wide open. And the reason why it was I never really bought a lot of comics at this time is I think, if I remember correctly, I would, had moved from Colombia in South America to Toronto in Canada. And it was probably just a matter of finding the right places to buy comic books. So the only ones that I remember buying were actually Shogun Warriors number one and number two. And the reason why I gravitated to Shogun Warriors is I was a big fan of Battle of the Planets. Oh, yeah. Transmute. Exactly. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I think I got a bit of a vibe, which I'm sure that's what they were going for. For some reason, I recall that there were actually toys that were made that Marvel was probably hired to tie into. So I got those two. And then if I look through my list, the ones that I would have bought definitely would have bought the Green Lantern, Green Arrow. I was a big fan of the team up and obviously having Black Canary on the cover was another plus. Okay. Before you leave this one, yes, this is the one, Sean, that Martin called out to us before because it's got the old lady on the cover from the White Bat story from issue number 19. Okay, yeah. Denny O'Neill wrote that story. We talked about this a few months ago. Denny O'Neill brings back that old lady who lives on the mountain, which I think is a riot. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, and if you look at the cover, originally when I looked at the scan, I thought, oh, that's another Neil Adams cover. Neil Adams has been fooling me all all month so far. (laughs) And then I looked at it and it's actually Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. So great cover there. I also would have definitely wanted to buy Batman number 308, Mr. Freeze. Even though he wasn't that big of a deal back then, I still would have enjoyed an issue. And that's an awesome Jim Aparo cover. The one thing that Mr. Freeze is missing here is him saying, ice to meet you. (laughs) Then the next one I would have bought was Peter Parker, Spider-Man. I always liked Daredevil. So have a nice team up with Spider-Man and Daredevil would have been right at my wheelhouse. Before we go farther, do you know what is special about this issue? Number 27 of Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man. Is it a Frank Miller? It is the first time Frank Miller drew Daredevil. Ah. Mm. Yeah, the cover is by Dave Cockrum. Oh, that's right. It's Dave Cockrum. But the insides are Frank Miller. All right, then really, if you're looking back at this list, if I had bought anything else, it probably would have been either a Richie Rich or maybe, (laughs) if I was feeling saucy, maybe a Hot Stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that thought about Richie Rich, we'll go back to it. That's all would have been on my list back then when I was a kidder. I actually didn't have a lot. Normally, I'm hanging out at the newsstand for an hour picking all of my titles, but this month, it wasn't so, so much. Action Comics, number 492. Superman's walking through the door and all of his family and the future is dying, so that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> DC Comics number six with Superman and Green Lantern. Yeah. And man, Green Lantern looks like someone cleaned up the floor with him and he's tossing his ring to Clark Kent to take over. The Great Superman book in softcover, which is how I had the Great Superman book. I bought that from Bookland at Delco Plaza in York, Pennsylvania. The next one I picked was Marvel Classics Comics Series featuring A Christmas Carol. I love the story of A Christmas Carol. I will say 
I probably am the only one who legitimately, honestly loves the Jim Carrey version of A Christmas Carol, like the CGI <laughs> version. And I'm not like a big Jim Carrey fan, so it's not that. It's a 3D disc, so that definitely helps. I love that. And the soundtrack is great because they incorporate Christmas carols. And I love that. Sean, I had this comic on my list too. So just so you know, Christmas Carol, Marvel Classic. All right. The next one is Pizzazz number 16. And I actually had this issue of Pizzazz because yeah. Superman was on the cover. I think this is the last issue of Pizzazz, too. Oh, is it really? I love how Marvel gets to publish a book with Superman on the front. So <laughs> Now, I have a printed copy, and it's too small for me to read, but it says something like, I consider it one of the greatest highlights of my career to be on the cover of a Marvel <laughs> magazine, <laughs> which that's wonderful. I love that. And of course... Spider-Woman number 12, because I want it to happen. Woof, woof. <laughs> and then the last one would be World's Finest. I would have picked that one. What's on your list, Paul? I can't resist Captain America number 230 just for the cover, where you've got Captain America being slammed up against the wall. He's got his shield yeah. up when the Hulk is smashing into his shield. Great yeah. Ron Wilson cover. In my continuing quest to find a good gold key comic, <laughs> this one is Flash Gordon number 21. It's in honor of Rob and his best friend, Alex Ross, and they're matching Flash Gordon pinball machines. I'll give this one a chance. You've got Flash Gordon, they're sort of standing in waiting level water, and he's punching somebody out and says, the shark men invade as a traitor within waits to strike the final blow. So that's a little more intelligible than most of the covers, but we'll see how well. <laughs> Well, that holds up. Human Fly number 19 is the last issue of that title to oh, Max's chagrin. Sorry, Max. Yeah. The Micronauts are on issue number two. Still a great series. And then probably the last one I have on my list that we haven't talked about, What If number 13, which is What If Conan the Barbarian Walked the Earth Today? So this would have been the first comic I bought that had Conan in it. And I did enjoy the story, but I never bought Conan comics, really. But I remember liking this one. And it's actually sort of part of continuity because Conan goes back to his time at the end. And so it's one of those what ifs that is a, it did. So anyway, that one I know I had and enjoyed. And that's about it. Oh, that's not it at the newsstand. We have our final, okay, news, final newsstand feature. So if you subscribe to a comic book for a year, you get 12 issues. <laughs> well, you could have had a year of Richie Rich in a month because <laughs> November 1978 saw 12 Richie Rich comic books. And again, that's when he's on the cover. So maybe in some of the Harveys, he could have had some reprint in the back or something like that. We're only counting the covers, but 12 Richie Rich comic books in November. Yeah, could you imagine new stance today? Richie Rich's millions, his billions, his zillions. And I like Richie Rich's profits. <laughs> <laughs> he squeezed it out of those workers. He's got lots of profits in that one. As long as it's not Richie Rich NFTs. <laughs> that would be one today. Cryptocurrency. <laughs> oh, heavens. All right. So now we're going to talk about our second story, which is called A Quick Death in China, starring Batgirl with some cameos with Batman and Robin. 11 pager written by Bob Rosakis with art by Don Heck and Frank Schiermonte. And it is, of course, reprinted in Batgirl, the Bronze Age Omnibus Volume 2. We pick up from last issue as our favorite congresswoman, Babs Gordon, along with her friend, journalist Leslie Tobern, have been kidnapped in China by the infamous Wo Fong. We get several exciting pages of Don Heck drawing people watching TV coverage of the kidnapping, but only Louis Ephraim, director of the NSB, 
I forget what that stood for. Knows the real reason for the kidnapping. Wo Fong wants Tony Gordon and wants to make a trade with the U.S. government for Gordons. Wo Fong also thinks that Leslie is Batgirl. So hey, even racially insensitive, stereotypical evil geniuses can be wrong sometimes. Anyway, Tony defies the wishes of Ephraim and travels secretly to China to rescue Babs. But Babs is doing pretty well for herself as she recovers her costume and starts beating up on the Sino Superman. Tony makes it there and tells Batgirl to get her friend out. She does, but the building explodes, apparently killing everyone inside. Babs has found her brother only to lose him minutes later. The end. Todd, what'd you think of this one? I love Batgirl. She's one of my favorite characters. I have to admit, reading this story was very confusing at first. And I had to go back and read the previous issues. There really didn't seem to me much of a recap. I was confused as to what was going on. And then even after reading the previous story, I don't know if it really helped that much. <laughs> But I will say that as much as we slag on poor Don Heck and his art, the one thing you can say overall is that he knows how to tell a story. His figures are not always what you like. The faces aren't always really polished. But overall, if you were a, a breakdown artist for Hollywood film or doing layouts, I think he tells a very clean story, very easy to understand. I agree with you there. There's a lot of inconsistencies in the story and idiosyncrasies in the story. The fact that they've recovered Batgirl's costume, there are two possible people that could be Batgirl. <laughs> <laughs> and they think it's the girl with the dark hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, they recover the costume. It would be one thing. It's yeah. like, oh, here's the costume. And look, there's this red, it's attached to a red wig. We have no yeah. idea who it is. <laughs> but in this case, maybe this poor villain is colorblind and, and, and didn't quite get it. All those henchmen don't, the hair is green, right? And the henchmen don't want to say anything. Like, uh, boss, it's could be her. If he's colorblind, he has a future in the congressional television <laughs> network. <laughs> the story is is what it is. The title of the story indicates what it is. It's a quick death. Poor Tony gets to the point where he's about to rescue his sister and help her out. And it's over as soon as it began. So I shed a tear for Tony. The other thing that I always thought was really odd is, you know, obviously you've got all these costumes apparently are super powered, which is why they're getting their powers. Poor Tony picks out a costume. It looks like a Supergirl reject <laughs> costume. It is what it is. It kind of ended very abruptly without yeah. a lot of drama. One of the things I think just to address that very point, Todd, is I think Bob is having to wrap up his Batgirl mm -hmm. stories relatively quickly. I think it would have gone on because I agree it's very abrupt at the end. We know that Bob only has one more issue where he's scripting Batgirl. And so I think that he's trying to wrap up all his loose ends. I think that's part of the reason that it feels so abrupt, especially with the death of Tony at the end. I read ahead. I don't know what's in the story next month, but I do know it's Bob's last Batgirl. And you can tell, obviously, they had a plan. The very beginning of this comic, Paul Levitt's outlines what the plan going forward the next few issues is. And so they obviously knew what they were doing the next few issues. So I agree with you. I think it, it was something that he had to wrap up pretty quickly. And it probably would have gone on for at least one other story because you'd want to have Tony and Barbara interact know, a little interact bit. That's a little what's bit missing. More. That's what's yeah. missing. How about you, Sean? It's an okay thing. Surprisingly, people know what I feel about Don Heck, but I actually don't think... <laughs> Praise. I don't think the artwork is as horrible as it normally is. I would agree with that as well. I think you're spot on. On story page one, I actually think his Tony Gordon looks really good. I don't know if I've never paid attention or anything, but I do kind of think the layout of people, how he stages people, I think is good. 
I guess that's it. On page seven, that's, I mean, we're not going to go beat by beat because this is such a short story and there's not a lot going on, but you've got the Babs jumping into action and you got mm-hmm. the sort of after images of her pseudo flash action where she jumps in and kicks the two scientists yeah. down. That's pretty good. So yeah, there's some decent parts to it for sure. And in regards to Tony Gordon, I had reread the entire series before I knew we were doing a podcast. I actually don't remember if he really is dead or if he comes. I definitely hope he comes back and survives this episode. But just have to wait along with the rest of us. <laughs> Although I guess that kind of says something about them. Instead, she traded Tony in for the new 52 crazy serial killer brother, James Jr. Oh, I'm I'm glad I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> One nitpicky art detail I will point out. I absolutely do not think it is Don Heck's fault. On story page six, where they say that they found the Batgirl costume and he's throwing it down on the floor. It's colored the exact same color of gray as their uniforms. It's not colored like a Batgirl uniform. Yeah. So that confused me until like you see her two panels later, she's kicking it under the bed and it actually is blue. So that was kind of like, what? Yeah. yeah. Like, there, there she's kicking it under the bed. No, I agree. He did draw a little bat on there. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't have much else to say. I think the whole Sino Superman storyline has been entertaining at times over the last been five or six issues, right? But it's overall not as strong as some of the earlier. I prefer the Robin storyline that's going on now with the yeah. the Raven and the yeah. crests. But we'll see where the new direction takes us. You guys ready to move on? Yes. Now it's time for Bat Family History. My original plan was to do that Bat Family History spotlight on Juan Ortiz who has had stories in previous issues that we've covered. That spotlight would have occurred after the Robin story, which he illustrates later in this issue and marks his final work for Batman Family. However, as I began my research, I hit a bit of a snag. When I looked up Juan Ortiz, I found a lot of stuff about how from 1989 to 1992, he was director of illustration for the WB Studio Stores and how he later created movie-style posters for every episode of Star Trek, the original series, and provided main cover art for IDW Star Trek Harlan Ellison's City on the Edge of Forever comic book series, which I have bought and read. The covers are tremendous. All awesome. And if you've never seen any of those, Google it. I was suitably impressed. But then once again, Sean, math got in the way. (laughs) That Juan Ortiz was born in 1963 in Puerto Rico. But the Juan Ortiz, whose work has appeared in Batman Family, started working for DC in 1976, which would made him 13 or 14 at the time. Now, we have other examples of people working at a really young age for DC back in the day, like Jim Shooter and Trevor Von Eden. But that seemed young even for that time. I could not find anything definitive about Juan Ortiz, the DC artist, who has only 43 story credits according to Mike's Amazing World, for issues with publication dates from February 1977 to September 1979. So while they may be the same person, they may also be two different people. I asked some friends in our community and no one was able to say with certainty that they were the same person or not. I decided to put it to you back, cousins. So let us know in the comments if you have any knowledge of Mr. Juan Ortiz. If so, we will certainly acknowledge your wisdom in a future episode. Instead, and in addition, I decided to do something a little different and give you a mini history lesson on the newest member of the Batman family, Etrigan the Demon, who we met a couple issues ago teaming up with Man Bat, but now who has his own strip for the next four issues. As I'm sure most listeners to this podcast know, in 1970, Jack Kirby was lured to DC to write, draw, and edit the Fourth World comics, New Gods, Mr. Miracle, Shag and Rob's favorite, The Forever People, and so forth. By 1971, they were not selling as well as DC had hoped. And once Kirby 
completely dropped Jimmy Olsen from his schedule, he needed some new books to fill his plate. According to Kirby's assistant, Mark Vanier, in the foreword to the Demon Collected Edition, Jack had a meeting with DC's publisher Carmine Infantino to talk about what to add to his schedule. They talked about adding a different Fourth World title, but Kirby asked if at least some of them could be drawn by others which was, we know, an ultimate goal of his. He wanted to create and edit, but get out of the trenches doing all the drawing and, and writing all the time. But Carmine said, no, not for the fourth world. That's too Kirby. If you want something for somebody else to draw, you got to come up with something that can be passed off more easily. So there was a feeling at DC at the time that superheroes might be on the decline. So they wanted to do something in different genres. They talked about the very popular movie, Planet of the Apes. And the first thing Kirby came up with was, of course, Commandy, The Last Boy on Earth. The folks at DC liked that concept and the look of it and later asked him to come up with another book, more in the mystery or horror genre, perhaps something a little demonic. And again, according to Vanier, he was not terribly interested in this genre. It just wasn't his thing, but he took to the challenge. Fine, if they want something demonic, I will call it the demon. A great story that's in that forward is that Jack and his wife, Roz, frequently took their family to the local Howard Johnson's for dinner, and Evanier often tagged along. That night, they ordered their dinner, and Jack all of a sudden got strangely quiet. The rest of the family chatted away, and Evanier noticed that Jack had that faraway look in his eyes. He thought, hey, Jack's writing something. By the time the dinner came, Jack started telling a family about someone named Jason Blood. He had the basic premise, the characters, the setting, the origin, essentially the entire contents of the first issue between the time he ordered his dinner and when the dinner came. It was in such detail you would have thought he'd been working on it for weeks. So after dinner, he went straight to his studio, pulled out a pile of books that reprinted some old Prince Valiant strips. He found the one he had been looking for where Val had disguised himself by stretching a goose skin over his face to create a grotesque mask. That was a pretty memorable scene to Prince Valiant fans. Jack thought it was be a cool inside joke to readers who recognized it and used that mask as a template for Etrigan's face. Jack went to his drawing table and created the first image of the demon. So in quick order, he fleshed out the first issue and DC loved it as well as Commandy. He wanted to turn them over to others to write and draw, but DC asked for another and then another. Jack soon got the message that DC didn't want anybody else but Kirby to write and draw the demon at Commandy. Soon after that, the New Gods and Forever People were also canceled, leaving Mr. Miracle, the last fourth world title, still standing. According to Evanier, Jack took it hard, but was famous for his resiliency. He says that when you read the demon, you can see two personal challenges being addressed by Jack. First was him doing a kind of material that was a bit alien and challenging to him, and second was to fall in love with his creation despite his disappointment. So in preparation for the demon's debut in Detective, I reread all 16 issues of those collected edition and highly enjoyed them. I won't go into details about his origin because this first story in this book here nicely does that. But keep in mind that prior to this issue of Detective, the demon has only appeared in 20 comic books. The 16 of his own series, two issues of Brave and the Bold, which were done by Bob Haney and while fun, not exactly a Kirby mold. The only other two appearances were a cameo in Challengers on the Unknown and issue 17 of Batman Family, where he teamed up with Man Bat and covered a few months ago. A lot of things were not not yet set in stone. For example, my favorite thing about the demon is his rhyming speech. In the original books, sometimes he rhymes, usually when he's casting a spell, but not always, okay? Also, the way he changes from Etrigan to Jason Blood is not consistent. In the first few issues, and in this story we're going to read, someone else has to summon him, but later he can do it himself, and the words of the summoning do differ from the now standard gone-gone form of man that we know now after hundreds more appearances. So that's a little mini history of the demon. What is your guy's history with the character? Sean, how about you? My history is Batman 
Man family. Okay. Which makes All sense. Right. Yeah. So the appearance with Man Bat and this story here, I have come to appreciate the demon much more as I've gotten older than when this came out. When it came out, I, I probably thought it was okay. Now I think it's great. That character is so striking and it's just such a cool idea. I absolutely love the rhyming. Of course I do. <laughs> I've always really liked the demon. Again, like Sean, I didn't see him a lot when I was younger. Probably what the appearances in Brave and Bold. Mm -hmm. Did he ever appear in Justice League? Or I don't think he ever made it. Yeah. I mean, not the satellite era. Maybe he's in a cameo somewhere, but I don't think he, he wasn't like the Phantom Stranger who showed up once. Right. But then I guess with Vertigo, right? When Vertigo came out and they started publishing their, their line of books, mm -hmm. you started to see the demon more, right? I mean, mm -hmm. he had his own miniseries, mm -hmm. correct? Did he make an appearance in the Sandman too? I got to think, especially the I'm, beginning parts of the Sandman are pretty set in DC continuity. It got more way. Yeah, I'm wondering because it's one of those characters. Well, he was in the Swamp Thing, Alan Moore Swamp. Oh, thing. that's Demons what it was. Yeah, that yeah, for thing. sure. Yeah, so they're all in that. That's, that's where you would have. Yeah, seen that's it. where you I would. Have. Yeah, I was a big fan of Swamp Thing with Alan Moore. So you're right. I would have seen him there, and then I think. But that's still several years away. This is 1978. Yeah. That's like oh yeah, no, 81, so, Yeah, it really wasn't until the mid to late 80s when you started seeing him a little bit more. Because right. I think John Byrne really liked him too, and he appeared in early uh, action comics and some of the action. Yeah, the action comics. And I think John Byrne, from what I remember, did stick to the rhyming. And I think he rhymed all the time. So yeah, I've always liked it. And then obviously he made the transition over to the Justice League animated series. Yep. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's just... just... a Batman animated series before that. Oh, right? uh, wasn't right. he showed up in one or two episodes? Yep. Yeah. You're right. And one of the things is, early on, Kirby established in the original series, issue number one, Demon is in Gotham City. And this was a time when Batman wasn't, you know, the most popular. He could have put him in New York or made-up city or whatever, but yeah. he put him in Gotham City. He doesn't make a big deal of it, but he is in Gotham City, so I think it's fair game for yeah. Batman. Yeah, and then Batman. you connect him to King Arthur legend. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of great connections from that. The first eight to 12 issues, I really really enjoyed I thought they were terrific and for some reason all 16 are not on DC Universe but the first 12 are mm. so I'd encourage listeners to read those first 12 because they're a lot of fun and you can see Len Wein playing into it because there's a lot of similarities we can talk about it after we cover the story reintroducing the demon into this new audience all right, so let's go on to do the third story, which, of course, is starring the demon. It's called The Eternity Book. It's 15 pages, written by Len Wein, who loves this story, loved the demon, and was like, this is one of the best things I ever wrote, is what he said later on, which I really found interesting. The art is by Michael Golden and Dick Giordano, which is fabulous, but it has never been reprinted, which is criminal. Vintage book dealer Aldo Beckerman is in his store one night when he is visited by a large stranger who demands that Aldo give him the Eternity Book. Aldo claims he doesn't know anything about such a book, but the intruder tosses him aside and tears down an enchanted cabinet to get at the book inside. With his dying breath, Aldo is able to say, Yarva Etrigan Demonicus, translated as, I summon the demon Etrigan. We cut to the, quote, bizarrely appointed apartment, unquote, of Jason Blood, where, to Sean's delight, Jason and the blind mystic Randu are working out, <laughs> sparring with no shirts on. At the same time that Aldo Beckerman spoke his summons, Blood transforms into Etrigan the demon and heads off to save the Eternity Book. Randu nicely summarizes the demon's origins in the time of Camelot for the other supporting cast members, Glenda and Harry. And for the 1978 readers who never got a hold of Kirby's original story from four or five years early. Basically, the wizard Merlin summoned Etrigan from hell for a last-ditch attempt to save Camelot. 
but the evil sorceress Morgan Le Fay put a spell on him, turning him into an immortal man, originally with no memory of his demonhood. Jason Blood wandered the world for hundreds of years until discovering his dual nature a few years ago. Back to the Gotham of today, the demon catches up to the thief who took the Eternity Book, but gets more than he bargained for. A vicious battle with an undead golem. Etrigan unleashes Hellfire on him, and eventually he drops the book. But when the demon turns around to recover it, it has been picked up by a mysterious stranger, Baron Time. To be continued. I love this story. I totally agree. It's a great Lenween story. The art is fantastic. It's moody. It tells you exactly what you need to know about Etrigan and his cast of characters that are supporting him. And obviously just it goes right into the action with the demon fighting this being. And then after a couple pages, then you know, now you've got one of the villains revealed. So a great teaser story it would definitely have prompted me to go and get the next issue when that came out. There's nothing that I would have to say against the story. It is truly terrific. Yeah. How about you, Sean? It's funny because technically this is a backup story. This is not a backup story. It gets 15 pages, yeah. which is two pages short of a 17 lead feature. The artwork, the story, I mean, this really is a book. It's a DC bonus book years before the bonus book started. I love it. And especially for like a character that has somewhat of a history, you walk into this and you get everything you need to know the two flashbacks and a course, that art is beautiful. So I think I'm probably going to give it the ultimate compliment with art. Even if that sparring match had been them in full tuxedos, I would think that this art is still spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, I got nothing bad to say either. The splash page is a two-page spread. Okay. It has sort of the history of the demon. You've got Clarion, the witch boy with his cat. You've got the demon. You got Merlin. You got these witches on the side, Morgan Le Fay. It's just tremendous. You've got the title of the story written in the road down below. Yeah, I know you like that, yeah. Sean. This old guy's trying to be tough and stand up to the guy, but then he actually looks at him. He says, oh, no, on page three. And it just goes on and on. It's really a terrific story. Lenween does a great job recapping the history of the demon. In the flow of the story, it just reads really nicely. Highly recommend anybody if you haven't read these demon stories. Again, they're on DC Universe in these four issues of Detective. It says it's going three issues, but it ended up going four issues, which is great. You know, given that it's 15 issues, I wonder if it was commissioned as a, another ongoing story and they cut a page or two out because they brought Len Wein in. He was relatively still new to DC. I got to think that this might have been something that they had planned, but they weren't launching any new books at this juncture. Right. But they wanted to get it in there because it was too good. A story and you got Michael Golden. And unfortunately, I think this is it for Michael Golden, guys. Uh, and really, I mean, the only thing if you could say anything against it is that the quality of this story really does kind of outshine all the other stories that are in this book even though we like the first batman story and we love the art this really makes it look a little paler in comparison yeah if you had started the book with this story then moved to all the other stories you'd be like oh what's the rest of this stuff well it's interesting because the two-page opening spread is actually the centerfold of the book Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you were paging through it, you would naturally fall to that on the newsstand. So I don't know if that was a happy accident or something that they planned. I, mean, I just noticed that as I'm sitting here looking at it. And obviously there was the team up with Man Bat previous, but is Demon really a member of the Batman family? 
is he really a detective? So it's probably <laughs> no on both. It probably quote unquote, shouldn't be here or doesn't fit it, but I don't care because I love it. It's just so, it really is spectacular. In a way, you can look at this almost as a tease as to what's going to happen to Batman a little bit later in the mid to late 80s, where you've got Doug Mensch coming in and doing more horror-like yeah. stories with Batman versus the more straightforward detective type stories that you would also see from Mike Barr and other creators. So it was really a, a bit of a test. I would, I'm sure they weren't planning on it, but from way from stylistically, you realize that, yeah, Batman can go in several directions, not just a straight superhero book or a detective book, but there's an element of horror based on his rogues gallery and what Gotham is like. I do like that it's included in this book because it does give it a little bit of a supernatural and gives you another aspect to Gotham and to Batman. We know that our bat cousin, Brett Young, will love Jason Blood's apartment because it's humongous. <laughs> And again, the comment was, it's bizarrely appointed. And you get a great shot of that on story pages 9 and 10, coming across the bottom of the page. Here's Jason Blood, right? He's got paintings of himself in ancient times in period medieval garb and suits of armor and stuff and by a roadster. And I love how you've got him with this shield in a painting. And then the shield and the sword that are in the painting are actually next to the statue, right next to the painting. I think that's yeah, just yeah. really slick. And that's all Michael Golden. Well, you know, listen, He's immortal. Right. Hopefully he's saved up a good 401k you okay. know, over you know, hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of years of life. That Compound you know, interest, baby. Yeah, should be able to afford a, a really nice apartment uh, in Gotham. Yes. Him, I can believe, can afford an apartment. It's, it's Jason Bard and... Or um, Kirk Langstrom. Kirk Langstrom <laughs> of the world that they'd have to... Yeah, so and he rhymes a couple times in here, but not every time. When he first changes back into the demon, he smashes out of the window. Thunder calls me from the sky to save the book, which dare not die. See, I love that stuff. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah. So do I. I absolutely love it. All these recurring characters were creations of Jack Kirby, the three supporting characters, his girlfriend, Randu the Mystic, and this advertising guy, for some reason, was the guy on the street in the original series. Just great stuff. Great stuff. I mean, I don't know if you want to go through beat by beat. I don't want to spoil the story too much for people because this is that good, but, you know, read it. And I actually think you did a great job of telling what happens in it. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. This Castle Brennick that they're going back to next issue, that's where the first issue of the Demon original series actually took place his origin place so that's why it's called return to castle brain all right so sean you want to move on now it's time for batmite's new york adventure starring batmite it's six pages written by bob rizakis penciled by michael golden and it was later reprinted in the greatest batman stories ever told 1989 world's funnest trade paperback 2016 detective comics 80 years of batman hardcover and Legends of the Dark Knight, Michael Golden Hardcover, 2019. And one thing I definitely want to tell you guys is that in the best of DC Digest number five, the year's best comic stories, in the inside back page, there's a text piece called The Story Behind This Issue, and they talk about the 10 best. But coming in at number 11, it says, of the runners up, the one with the most votes was Batmite's New York Adventure, so this is the 11th greatest comic book story of the year. Yay! <clears throat> la 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 la. There's an old might in town and his story's good. They told this tale the only way that they could. Because with characters like this, you have to walk a line. And I think... In this case, they did even better than just fine. 
fun, 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 fun. Batmite comes to Earth Prime, interacts with the writers and the artists, and gets his story. So I have one thing to say, and then I'll let Ty go. It is amazing to me that this is the same artist that did just the story before. This is an entirely different story. It's comical. It's a short, cute little piece with likenesses of real people. Couldn't be more different than the demon story we just talked about. Now, it's different inker. Bob Smith is the inker here compared to Dick Giordano, but still. So that's my main thing. I mean, I think it's cute. It's silly. It's an excuse for these guys to talk about their friends and draw them into a comic book. Todd, anything you want to add? Sure. You know, that page 14 of the Etrigan story was really awesome. You know, if you look <laughs> back at the, the way the panels go... Oh, no. Oh, this might be Batman family feud. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I've never really enjoyed, understood Batmite, other than being a cool name. I've never really got, I love Mr. Mitchell Flick, but I've never really gotten the Batmite thing. So the sooner the story was over, the better for me. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. My head is ringing. Sorry, Bob. Sorry, Michael. I absolutely love the story. Kind of like I said in my song. Honestly, at the time when I knew that they were doing a Batmite story, I got really excited. Like, I thought, oh, this is going to be cool. And really, to a degree, when I first read this story back in 1978, I was a little bit disappointed because it is kind of like a cheat because it's not really a comic book story. He's not with Batman or Robin or anybody like that. Now I understand that, especially at this time, coming off of that period of Batman and the Batman. Batman TV show and everything. You know, you wanted Batman to be serious. When he's in the sewers, that's fantastic and all that. Now I understand why they did it this way. You get a Batmite story. It takes place on Earth Prime. So that means that Batmite really is real. The likenesses, technically, I don't know that that's what these people look like. But you know that that's what these people look like. Yeah. And it was neat, too, that in the Man Bat story, I remember seeing Michael Golden in the diner because I remember seeing Michael Golden in this issue. Yeah, no, you brought that up when we saw him in the diner, which is pretty funny. Well, first of all, I think it's ironic that Al Milgram kicks off the issue, given that he was the one that was fired. But here he is kicking off this story. But what's really neat is he was drawing an issue of Firestorm, which I love. And, you know, you look at the top of page three and it's Firestorm but it's Firestorm Might. Yeah. That is cute. That is very cute, I have to say. And I actually looked through the original run of Firestorm on DC Units. Oh, was this an actual page? No. Uh, I would love that if it was a real page and they just mighted it. Yeah. But I didn't see anything that looked like it. The other art thing that I'll mention is if you look at the bottom right corner uh -huh. of page three, the yep. Batman Family cover, it doesn't say Detective Comics. That's 481, the last issue. It says Batman Family number 21, which, of course, yep. as we know, never appeared. So, okay, you caught that too? Yeah. I've been trying to stare and I don't own an electron microscope. But underneath the word balloon where it says, but we can't just say, okay, and you've got it, we'll need a writer. There's a little bit of the cover. And I'm trying to see if that is the same as the two continent caper. I don't think it is. I don't think it is either. I think yeah, that's I don't know like what a that different. Because that was the Marshall Rogers stories that would have been in Detective. Right. Yeah. So I do wonder what that other part is. Yeah, good catch. Yeah, I don't know. And also, too, the thing I love is that each of the people are kind of given their little either personality quirk or something about their life. Jaxie Harris talks about the diaper, like the new baby. Anthony, who's doing his pulps with the shadow. 
and then playing bridge and with Michael Golden and his dog. All of them seem like a personality trait or something that's really, really specific to them. I super have respect for Batmite because all through this, he is drinking soda after soda after soda. So that's a mite after my own heart. <laughs> I do have one positive thing to say about the story, now that I think of it. What? It's only five pages. (laughs) There's one in every family. Maybe we should transition to Batmail Family, Sean. (laughs) Okay, okay. Batmail Family is actually a little bit of a disappointment for me. I guess within reason. There are actually two pages, the inside front cover and the inside back cover. Both of them have this humongous Batcave logo, which they make a big deal out of no offense to Stan Chichinsky. If you'd like to come on the show, we'll talk to you. They talk a big deal about this logo. It's just the bat thing with a bat cave word in it's it. It's terrible. <laughs> but it's not like a big, big deal. They take a whole bunch of room. The front inside cover, they go like a little bit behind the scenes and say, welcome to the combined detective. We should have said this last issue, but we were so rushed. We didn't have time for that. And then they talk about the stories that are coming up, which is fine and good and cool. And then there's like a big white negative empty space, the little boxes that tell you what's coming up. Then on the inside back cover, there's room for the Superman movie contest, which they had to do fine. But then there's only three letters because they had to combine Detective Comics and Batman Family. Fine. There's only one letter about Batman Family. So Mike White, if you're the Hollywood writer, director, Mike White, we'd love to have you on. But we'd love to have you on because you're a fan of Batman Family. And even Mike Bates and Tony Edwards, who write letters about Detective, we'd love to have you on. I just think this could have been combined and they could have had more letters. Yeah. Now, it could have been a thing of they didn't have the time. Yeah, just by making the logo smaller, you can do that. Right. Remember the Batmail family logo with those fetching images of Batgirl yeah. and Robin? That was always a little square when they did it. So you could do that with this logo. Right. Yeah. I kind of bet it comes down just to more time. Like yeah. They just didn't have time to do that. That's it. I don't have anything else on the logo. Yeah, that's it. All right. Our final story is called The League of Crime, and it is starring Robin with a mystery guest. It is 12 pages written by Bob Rosakis with pencils by, as I mentioned earlier, Juan Ortiz and the inks by Dave Hunt reprinted in Robin, the Bronze Age omnibus, of course, and strangely in Batman Arkham Joker's Daughter trade paperback. I don't know why. The entire story is once again told in Super Friends style flashbacks. We are present as a mysterious man is watching a recording of Raven, no, not that one, to get an assignment to steal the helium from a balloon headed for New Carthage. Of course, Robin, now back in his traditional uniform, stops him as the greatest ever piece of bat technology finally shows up in Batman family. Of course, I'm talking about the Whirly Bat. Our hero saves the passengers by putting the Whirly Bat on autopilot, then jumps out for another aerial battle with the Raven, no, not that one, but the Raven shakes him loose and Robin Robin plummets toward the ground, saved only by the Robin parachute in Carnival Red, complete with our logo. (laughs) Batman would be very proud of the branding. Our mysterious man then wants to see a second operative. This one codenamed the Card Queen. She is a totally new card-based gimmick character and not anyone we have seen before who might be expert at disguising herself or who Robin might know. 
Anyway, while she is training to be a bad guy, she's really masquerading as a hero. She always captures the gang, but lets one get away and pilfers some of the money on the side. She is discovered by the world's second greatest detective when he notices some of the stolen cash spilling out of her bag. But she gets away. However, she does not return to the lair of a mysterious stranger, but disappears from sight. We finally get the big reveal of the mysterious stranger. He is the head of Maze, and he wants Robin dead. To be continued. Sean, Todd, what do you think of The League of Crime? It was, again, it was a well-told, well-laid-out story, not super complicated, told in kind of like a flashback, but using a different metaphor. I had no problem with the art. I thought it was really great. Loved the debut of the Whirly Bird. Is that is it <laughs> the baby? Yeah, well, I guess this one could be the Whirly Bird. Yeah, I guess Robin. it should be. It's red and it's kind of looks like, does it, Is it just me or does it kind of look like a dragon? He's riding a dragon through the air. Or like a dinosaur tail, yeah. And then the addition of the Card Queen. She's quite the femme fatale and quite interesting so as a person reading this story i want to see what happens next it succeeded in doing what it was supposed to do which was get me interested in the story and wanted me to keep coming back excellent sean general comments i like it i like it a lot i think it's fun it's cool it does a lot to kind of explain why there could be like so many villains in new carthage because of like this this (laughs) group to a degree and i mean this with respect it did almost kind of feel like a dial h for hero story because it could be like card queen created by Raven created by... (laughs) No, but you bring up a good point about the new Carthage. You finally say, oh, these people are funding these villains to train them. And I liked how Raven was squeamish about killing the balloonists. Uh Uh-huh, yep. That shows he's not all bad, even if he stole Dick's girlfriend. Oh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that there are criminals who are fine with whatever, like holding up a bank or whatever, stealing a car or whatever, but they're not going to kill someone. There are different levels. Absolutely. Again, this might be horrible to say, but from a story point, I think it's great. Maze creates this trap for them. Well, you have to kill them. And then the guy's like, well, I'm sure you'll step in at the last minute. He's like, no, no, we'll let them kill the people. That way we have leverage over them because we can use it again. That's not great from a humanistic story. No, that's clever. But it's great from a crime story standpoint. So and it makes sense that Maze has been behind all this. Bob has been using Maze since the first story he wrote. First story he wrote in Batman Family. Card Queen is fun. I like her gimmicks. It's pretty funny how the cash is spilling out of her purse. I think that's pretty funny. Yeah. (laughs) It's got like sparkles around it. She put like a little light in there just to highlight it. So So no no one would miss it. Yeah. You mentioned about Super Friends because the rounded boys. But I almost do think it looks like it could be a grown-up version of Ramona Frayden or Kurt Schaffner. Juan Ortiz could have done Super Friends if you ask me. I mean, we'll see what he has to say. But I think that this is close enough to the Super Friends that if he paired with, I don't know, the same anchor or the figure work would be maybe a little less detailed. Robin's a little less muscly in the Super Friends than he is here. But other than that, I think he could do Super Friends. Lieutenant Tatum is back. Did you notice that? Yes. That is one thing. So I was praising Juan, which he deserves praise. But on story page 11, the top panel where the card queen is pulling her gun, it looks like Lieutenant Tatum, he's pulling a gun on Robin. Like it looks like he's like grabbing him by his arm. I don't think it's a coloring mistake. His hand is going for his jacket, I think. But Robin's arm looks like it's there in Tatum's. Should have had some more space between Tatum and Robin. Yeah, Robin. Robin, scoot over. Robin's invading Lieutenant Tatum's space. Your left, man. (laughs) Yeah, because really, you look at Lieutenant Tatum. He's using one hand to pull open his jacket, and the other hand to pull out his gun. You're right, but because they're so close together, it does look like he's got Robin behind the arm. Threatening Robin. 
Card Queen is trying to give Dick a clue at the bottom of page 11. Don't forget, there's always a Joker in the deck. Notice mm -hmm. that? Oh, I didn't notice that. <laughs> oh, okay. In the last panel, we see the guy revealed. Is this supposed to be the same guy from Maze that was running the wedding? I think so. I think so, yeah. I think it's supposed to be the same guy, so he's just fed up with Robin now. He wants yeah. to see right Okay, all right. I think so, yeah. Although, he doesn't have a name. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> So one of the things that did amuse me in this story was on page three. They're talking about how they created this device to be able to extract the helium from the balloon. <laughs> and and wouldn't they like, just need something pointy? <laughs> <laughs> They bait this whole machine. All you need is a little... I think he's sucking the helium out. You think about the helium, right? It takes up all this space in the balloon. Right. And he's sucking it out and spitting <laughs> it inside tiny, that gun. Tiny canister. <laughs> <It doesn't... laughs> that's comic book physics. Yeah, I don't think exactly. the real physics works that way. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, now for me, the best part about it was the card queen, the whirly bat, and the robin parachute. We got to talk about the robin parachute. He does say, I'm glad I thought of packing the parachute. So we know that that's not something he carries around every day. That was a good touch by Bob. I like that. Just fun all around. It does progress the story forward. And so we'll get the big showdown with Robin and Maze and hopefully all these plot threads get resolved in the not too distant future. Well, guys, I think it's time to go dancing. All right. We are going to take a trip to Gabriel's Horn, the hip hop and tang out for the Teen Titans in the 1970s. Hey, it's a little near the end of disco. I mean, it's just Karen and Mal there now, but we still will want to go through the most <laughs> 1970s moment in the issue. Let's start with you, Todd. Do you have any particular ones you want to bring out? Yes. In the very first story, I think the only thing that seemed a 70s thing, not necessarily a 70s thing, but not something you would see nowadays, is a security guard with a gun, right? Most uh -huh. of the time you'll see a security guard now would probably a walkie talkie, not a gun. Yeah, uh -huh. that that's okay. real. That's, that's really one. good. That's a great one. And his little hat is a little. Uh, I don't think he used to have the pointy hats anymore. <laughs> that's, that's an excellent. That, yeah, that's really good. Sean, did you? Ha I have one really good one, and that's it. I'll go next then because mine isn't good. Nothing language. Nothing referenced. There is a lot of machinery, wires, gizmo, that kind of stuff. Although I think even now you would have to have an impressive array of electronics. They would just mm -hmm. be different kind of electronics. I know mine is not very good, but I kind of wanted to prove that I did the assignment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I didn't want to, I didn't want to just say no. <laughs> I am actually shocked that you did not catch this one because this is a pop culture thing. In 1978, there was a little movie called Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, wow. oh yeah. yeah. And the title of this story is, of course, yeah. Night of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Let's move on to Batgirl. So how about you, Todd? Do you have anything in Batgirl story? Well, the only one that I really can come up with was the phrase that Tony says on page six. He says, but this is the place that they held me and I'll bet yen to yo-yos <laughs> that Babs is inside. Yeah. And I thought it was like, well, yen is a Japanese currency, but right. they're in China. So right. what's going on there? I actually looked it up in Wikipedia, which is a, always a reliable source, kids. <laughs> Obviously, during World War II, Japan invaded part of China right. and, and occupied Taiwan, occupied Hong Kong. And they did use Japanese currency for a time until later when the communists took over China and introduced their own currency. So yen would have been an appropriate phrase to say at that 
that time. But obviously nowadays they do not use yen in China. Oh, very cool. I have a phraseology one as well. Of ooh, course, we ooh. refer to China as the bamboo curtain, even on the back cover, Batgirl mm-hmm. trapped behind uh, the bamboo curtain. Yeah. And it is yeah. referred to in the story. And I looked that one up on Wikipedia. And it says the term bamboo curtain denotes the political and economic barrier between territories under the control of the communist regime in China and non-communist countries, especially from the late 40s to 1972. So it's a little old at this point, but it was definitely called just like Soviet Union was the Iron Curtain, China was the Bamboo Curtain. And similarly, there was a slow boat to China reference. So I think Bob was trying to get all the Chinese phrases he knew into one story. That phrase I looked out up came from like the 40s or something. So that's not a 1970s. I had something incredibly major that I can't believe we didn't talk about before. And then I did research and found out I was completely wrong about it. (laughs) (laughs) So it doesn't count. I was thinking, oh, because they're taken hostage. Oh, well, this had to have been inspired because of the Iranian hostages. I can't believe we didn't think about that. So I was completely wrong. So when we get another year's worth, 1979, maybe we'll see 79, something. 79, yeah. I had nothing in the demon story. Did you ever you guys have a Gabriel's horn and demon, Todd? The only thing that I could think of, just the style of fighting that or the sparring that they were doing between Jason Blood yeah. and uh-huh. it looked didn't look really like a style of that you would find nowadays, right? You it's probably like some type of judo or whatever, whereas now you'd have different types of martial arts that are more popular. That's the only thing I could think of. Cool. I have one that is a solid maybe. (laughs) I was thinking of the blackout when the blackout happened because that was so popular. Not popular. I mean, that was a common thing that happened in the 70s. So maybe that was partially inspired by the blackouts that New York like often had. Yeah. But we had one of those in the uh, outsider story too, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very well could have been. Yeah. And that's it. And in Batmite, I mean, I had the typewriter, of course, telephones. Yep. We've seen those before, but I, I don't have anything else in the Batmite story. Did you talk now? No. One thing is kind of just the fact they have to be in the office to produce the comic. What? I think that's something very much of the time. He talks about if you're taking a train, you're taking the train four hours. You'd still have to. But I think the fact that everyone has to be there in the office to create the comic book. Yeah, very good. No remote work in. Yeah. Comics office in the 1970s. Very good. Yeah. I like that yeah. one. And then finally, Robin. Did you have anything, Todd? I had one that actually came up while we were talking about this story, and that's actually the parachute. You know, the parachute, I think if you were writing that story mm. nowadays, you'd have some type of a gliding machine. You'd have the wings will inflate and you could glide, and which would probably be one that could integrate a little bit more with a costume than, say, like a big, huge parachute would. Didn't but, the Tim Drake Robin have that at one point? Oh, maybe. Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. he did. I can't. Maybe New 52 Tim Drake. I don't know, but whoever, doesn't matter. But I think even if you had a parachute now, it would be more like the rectangular Right, it would, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It would be, because it wasn't one that you would have in a in World War II. It would be one that would basically glide. Yeah, that's fantastic. Given, that's a good one, Todd. I like that one. And that given is a Robin's you know, athletic abilities, he could easily tumble out of any type of Very fall. Cool. The other one that I had for this story was actually the reference to helium and that they were going to be stealing the helium. And even though it was a 70s thing, I actually think it actually applies to nowadays because I think nowadays a robber might actually steal helium and then go to Party City and resell it, you know, (laughs) quite a lot of money. So, but that's all I had. All I had with this one was the head of maze at the beginning says, roll the tape. Yeah. That's not a great one. Did you have anything else? Not really. Yeah, the last few issues have not been our strongest Gabriel's horns. That just means that they're timeless. Yeah, <laughs> that must be it. <laughs> 
But you are going to start seeing more references. Like you think about the comics of the 80s, you're going to see more references to computers and, yeah. and things like that. So a lot of these old technologies are going to start to come in less prominently in the stories. Yeah, fair point. Well, that wraps it up for this issue. Todd, thanks again for coming along and helping us out. We super really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Now we are going to play a podcast promo. And when we return, we will read and respond to your listener feedback. autumn. The leaves change colors and begin to fall. The kids go back to school. Pumpkin Spice becomes its own food group. And little ghosts and goblins are on the streets begging for candy. But something sinister awaits. Back in the woods among those dead trees sits a foreboding, dilapidated manor. You can't resist. You must go inside and return to the house of Franklin Stein. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. The Supermates Podcast presents four spine-tingling episodes covering your favorite classic horror films featuring these iconic stars. Griffin Dunn and David Naughton. You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. Yes, that's right. Bela Lugosi. I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. Claude Rains. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. <laughs> and Peter Cushing. I can hear his voice. It's in your own mind. It just has to be true. Plus, your favorite superheroes versus classic monsters. I understand your concern, Mr. Wayne, but I don't think you need to worry that Wayne Tech is responsible for this invisible man. But I seem to remember last year hearing something about an invisibility project. Visit fireandwaterpodcast.com or your favorite podcatcher for the 10th annual journey into terror at the House of Franklin Stein. available in pumpkin spice flavor welcome back now we will read and respond to your listener feedback for episode 481 batman family saves detective comics with our special guest star chris franklin hold on to your cows and domino masks bat cousins because we have a ton of comments this month we're going to abbreviate a bunch of them so if you want to read every word please go visit fireandwaterpodcast.com in addition, at the end, I'm also going to read out a few of the comments of the recent FW Presents episode I did with Shag and Siskoid on the Maze Agency. Anyway, first up, everybody's favorite bat nephew, Isamu Hideke Yukinori says, Fun show, Uncles Sean, Paul, and Chris. Since someone was talking about bringing mustard brownies, I decided to bring mayonnaise cake. Don't let the name throw you off. It's actually a chocolate cake that uses mayonnaise in place of the eggs, milk, oil, and butter. It was the first cake my sister and I learned to make when dad was teaching us how to bake at ages 8 and 10. So I've gotten pretty good at making it. So give it a try. No? Well, more for me then. Mm-mm. The first Batman story was really fun, but where are Uncle Chris's pictures of the Batcopter toy in the image gallery? Isamu, I mentioned in the comments, and I'll say it here, it was totally my mistake. I forgot to put them in the gallery, but Chris generously posted them here. So again, Bat Cousins, go check out the amazing photos of the toy reference. Chris did a great job of positioning the helicopter in exactly the way that Marshall Rogers mm -hmm. would have done it. Mm -hmm. Back to Isamu. One logical for me was Batman lassoing the train on pages 13 to 15. The disconnected part of the train was already rolling backwards. If you do the math, sorry, Uncle Sean, that means the relative <laughs> speed of the front of the train would be its actual speed plus the speed of the backward rolling disconnected cars. Batman must use a very heavily weighted rope to be able to throw it that far and that fast. 
I love it when the bat relatives bring the math and science, Uncle Sean. The DC subscriptions person in the house ads, whom Uncle Chris mentioned, is Carol Fine. I found an image of the ad from CBR. Isamu then goes on to post a subscription ad with Carol Fine and an actual photo of her and the other DC staff and event. It doesn't quite look like the woman in 481 was Carol, so that's still a mystery, I guess. Thanks, Isamu. Now, in this part of the script, I'm supposed to keep reading his letter and I will get to it, but I just want to say thank you, Isamu, because you <laughs> are phenomenal. All of our bat cousins are equal in our eyes, but some are more equal than others. <laughs> Whatever a nice way of saying we super really appreciate you and not make others feel bad is what I'm going to say. So thank you, but we really super appreciate it. Here, here. Let me tell you, You've probably done more work than I have for some of these episodes. <laughs> That's the absolute truth. <laughs> he then goes on to comment on the other stories too. Robin's fan-made outfits do look like they were created with the Tomy Mighty Men and Monster Maker toy. Yes, I looked that up. See what I mean? He does more work than I <laughs> He goes on and says, I think the mustard brown one was meant to evoke the actual colors of the robin bird, sans the red breast, to go with the wings and stylized gloves and boots. That reminds me, I should check out the science department at my college to see if they have any jetpacks I can experiment with. <laughs> Uncle Sean, JLA number 161 was my dad's first encounter with Zatanna in the comics as well. That's why he tended to draw Zatanna in her sorceress outfit in his pieces for The Line It Is Drawn on CBR, much to the viewer's dismay, because they wanted a free Zoom Yukonori drawing of Zatanna in fishnets. I used to watch Batman the Animated Series on Dad's videotapes before he got the DVDs, which were direct recordings by his Uncle Kenzo of the Fox afternoon airings in 1992 to 1993. I remember during the end credits of The Man Who Killed Batman, the music was lowered under an audio promo voiced by Kevin Conroy for the next day's Zatanna episode, and I'm sure he pronounced her name as Zantana too. If I still had the tape and a VCR, I would capture the audio, but maybe another listener remembers that promo and can verify whether my memory is correct. I don't remember the voiceovers, but I definitely recorded Batman the Animated Series I did too. on videotape every day. And I'm almost positive I had everyone. And I don't know if cousins remember this, but you cousins probably remember Columbia House. You would send away and get 10 records or tapes or CDs for like a penny or something like that. But they also had a video club. I know Rob knows it from MASH. I had Brady Bunch tapes. I had Star Trek. And I had Batman the Animated Series. Did they? I don't remember. Yeah. It was four episodes on one tape, and that was obviously way before DVDs. Then when the DVDs came out, it got yep. those. I absolutely love Batman the Animated Series. I think it's the pinnacle of Batman storytelling. So I hope someone finds that voiceover, because I would love to hear that. <laughs> Validate you, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. So the last part of his letter says, According to Dark Marks Comics indexing domain, which my dad had used and now I use to track character appearances for the Zooms Who entries, this Batgirl story was indeed Leslie Talburn's first appearance, and the following issue was her last, at least pre-crisis. I suppose she was created just to be a secret identity decoy and serve no other purpose, which is too bad. Well, I have to bow out of this reunion early to go to class. I'll come back after the homework is done to pick up the karaoke machine, at least, if the party has already died down by then. As if that's not enough, a little later, Isamu returns to drop some more knowledge on us. He says, I am back between textbook chapter readings for a little more commentary. 
Uncle Paul, you had mentioned that the DC implosion caused some comics to cut their main 17-page features to 15 pages to include some of the backup stories. Well, it appears that this issue of Detective Comics had to cut their Batman family stories in order to fit in this dollar comic with the original Denny O'Neill and Marshall Rogers story that was planned for this issue. Courtesy of Heritage Comics, here is the original art to page 5 of the Batgirl story as originally planned for Batman Family 21. As you can see, two panels have been discarded and the rest were moved back to page 4. Isamu posted a scan of the original art and a scan of the original page 8 that was not included. He also said, Sharp-eyed viewers may notice that the last page of the Robin story in the gallery is number 12, but there were only 11 pages in the story. So which page was removed? I suspect that page 7 is a combination of the original pages 7 and 8. Page 7 is one of the few pages of the story with simple rectangular panel borders, and that aerial dogfight with Raven ended rather abruptly with that wall that Robin struck on page 7. Panel 5 literally coming out of nowhere. One would think that the big empty space in the bottom right corner of panel 4 could have shown the building Robin was going to crash into. I can find any images of the original art online to prove my theory though check it out bad cousins again thanks isamu very cool great detective work <laughs> next up is bat cousin martin menza who says thanks guys for the shout out to me when you hit the letter call of this issue the editor actually snipped out the batgirl portion from a longer letter i had sent about the whole issue my comment about babs must have been one of the better ones to use there as I mentioned to you when you all had me on, my Batman Family subscription was converted to a Detective Comics subscription when the books merged. I kept up my Detective subscription for a few more years, well into the time when the book went back down in size. And then, Bat Brian, enemy of the shoe, stops by the reunion to say, Hi, Bat Family. I've brought Twinkies and red velvet cupcakes, and I'm trying to recreate the second Robin Rooter's costume <laughs> variation on my soggy paper plate. That rocket pack is tricky. Super hypnotism? Now I finally understand the source of the humor behind that issue of The Tick, where he needs a disguise, so he puts on his hypnotic tie. <laughs> 30 years is never too late to understand the joke. Has anyone seen a recent Tim Drake costume? You know, when he changes his superhero name to Drake? It is brown like the first costume Robin tries on. Coincidence? I think Joe Montgomery of Abilene, Kansas should be made aware of this. I have to run. The Twinkies look like they're about to explode. I probably shouldn't have gone for authenticity by adding jetpack fuel to my design. Time to submerge it in on the cooler before it... Kaboom! Next up, Bucky749 says, Hey, everybody. It's Cousin Bucky. I brought Blackberry and Strawberry Shortcake, and Cousin Jeremy is setting up the movie screen where we will be showing the classic Battlestar Galactica movie and the Doctor Who TV show. Rob McCarthy adds, Black Spider? His murder started off my 18-page Batman pitch, which would have been a two-year story. I love Electro. Remember, there were three Electros, two at Marvel and one at DC, but we only know the main one. Wizard is funny, but the modern way they draw him is much better. He had bare arms in the 40s, which looked goofy. To which Bat Cousin George replied, The only DC Electro I know is the one from the episode of the 1977 Filmation Batman series, where Electro is an alien who hypnotizes Batman and Robin. Another great episode. Thanks, George, and all three of you guys. Our bat sister from another mister, Liz Ann Oswald, says, Impressive podcast. Most impressive. I don't care what boots he is wearing. You are not sliding down that <laughs> train rail. Yeah, Dick should have dated Margie. Way better than Lori. I won't judge the costumes since these are fan creators. Raven. Can't believe he wore that in public. Ooh, skinny dipping Robin. Oh my. Hey, if the photographer is fighting the bad guys, 
people could think that she was Batgirl. They could think she wears a wig like Black Canary did. So I could see the confusion. Ah, the Man Bat TV PI show we all should have gotten. LOL, great fun story. Anyway, can't wait to hear the next podcast. Thanks, Liz. Next up, Bat Cousin Matthew Davis comes by the reunion and says, this is the comics version of where the kids moved out a couple years ago, (laughs) built their own brand new pad, and had just completed an addition. But the economic downturn has forced them to move back into dad's ancestral home. (laughs) But it feels right. Didn't all these characters have their first appearance in Detective Comics? They sure did. So does this mean that this issue is Batman Family Legacy Issue Number 21? I see what you did there, Matthew. Yes. Yes, the dreaded cover boxes are back, but they do seem needed for an anthology comic like this to showcase all the characters. At least a wraparound cover doesn't seem too crowded. And I don't know what it is, but I still keep thinking of 80 songs to fit the stories. I blame you, Sean and Paul, for this bat earworm. Batman Story 1, Crazy Train by Ozzy, because the locomotion by Kylie Minogue is too peppy of a song for Batman. I disagree with that. Just a couple of years earlier in Brave and the Bold, he's walking down the sidewalk admiring the pretty girls. So I'm going to, I'm obviously I am going to vote for Kylie Minogue. I have to. <laughs> a relatively simple story with a golden age feel to it, but an enjoyable read from two of the best Batman creators ever. One thing about Rogers I've always loved is how he integrated the sound effects into the action. The gunshot on page two and Batman punching Greeny on page four are perfect examples. Robin, sharp-dressed man by ZZ Top. That's a good choice. Got some great Don Newton artwork with Robin's putting on a fashion show for the fans. Let's run through these threads. The brown and tan Earth Tones outfit might be the most late 70s thing in this issue. Add some bright yellow and red and we have the San Diego Padres colors of the time. (laughs) It resembles the outfits Terra and Geoforce will wear in about five years. Maybe it's just me, but I'm not too crazy about the Robin circle with Batwing symbol. It's like it ties Robin to Batman at a point when he's been operating on his own and establishing himself separate from Batman. At the time, I actually liked this one, but now I don't know. I'm not going to get in the middle of you and Chris Franklin on the Earth 2 Batman symbol there, Matthew. So I'll, I'll let you guys duke it out. I don't mind the red and yellow one. Similar color scheme as his original outfit, minus the green. Maybe the highlights on the mask should have been green instead of blue. It resembles what Tim Drake has worn in recent years. But are the yellow parts black with yellow highlight or yellow with black shading? Generic is the best way to describe the blue and green one. Maybe it's the shades of blue and green that don't work for me. Make the blue a darker shade. I'm not sure what's going on with the rib trunks much less why they're divided by the utility belt. Yeah, that was weird. Wait, number two has a jetpack? That's handy since Daven, or uh, Rave Corby, I mean Raven, attacks again. Does Raven use the same thing to fly? But is the cape wise to wear over a jetpack? I keep picturing Edna Mode with her hand on her head thinking, no one listens. Batgirl, China Girl by Bowie, but One Night in Bangkok by Murray Head also came to mind. At least neither is problematic as to how the Chinese are depicted in the story. Batgirl is in China. Barbara Gordon is in China. Both have red hair. Therefore, Batgirl is the dark-haired photographer. Just because she stopped the guy with a grenade? And people think Clark Kent's glasses are ridiculous. Man Bat, Dancing Queen by Abba. Kirk's first case as a PI seems simple enough. Rescue a kidnapped wife and perfect his Bogart impression. At least Bogie never had to deal with discos. And then Batman story number two, Shock the Monkey by Peter Gabriel. Jim Starlin gave us that awesome wraparound cover last issue, and now a second Batman story this issue. This is another from this era that I found memorable. It starts off as a Poe-inspired mystery that involves Batman's father, and ends up with a science fiction-y mind swap with a gorilla that predates the ultra-humanite and his gorilla body. How can Batman say it's impossible? He's on a team with aliens and Amazon and Android, has been to an alternate Earth. Mind transfer with a gorilla should just be another Wednesday. 
I'm glad to know I'm not the only one bugged by Thomas Wayne serving in World War One. It's not impossible for Bruce to be born when his father was in the mid-50s, but Thomas and Martha have always been depicted in the same age range. Can't wait for next issue. It'll be in the same title, right? And Batman in the same body, right? Thanks, Matthew. Martin Gray says, It's great to be back at the Batman Family Reunion Barbecue. I've brought cornflower cakes, chocolate, and treacly crunchy goodness. Starting with the feedback, you misunderstand me. I do know that Letterman and Saturday Night Live were national programs. I just meant local in the sense that they filmed in New York, so would be local to Marvel. And while Saturday Night Live has been shown on national TV a few times in the UK, it's never caught on. It's too American. I don't think Letterman has appeared on UK screens at all. I remember this front cover. It's pretty terrible, too disjointed, with not much dynamism to the figures. I'd not seen the rear previously, but it's pretty dorky, what with that silly bat mask silhouette over a cityscape. And who forgot to begin every blurb with the name of the featured hero? Batman in London. <sighs> Were U.S. creators taking the piss in their constant presentation of London as a city trapped in the 19th <laughs> century? We've not actually had peace supers since the Clean Air Acts, the first of which came after 1952's Great Smog of London, which killed 4,000 people. In the DCU, that was definitely a supervillain plot. Excellent work on the top pronunciation of Basil, Sean, as in Faulty Towers. All right, fair enough. Thank you, Martin. Regarding the JLA number 161 house ad, Zantana is the rogue of the Silver Age. Apropos of something I can't remember, what the heck is Robin Cake? So, <laughs> Martin, much like British slang, underwear is pants, and that's not good, which I wholeheartedly disagree because I love underwear. Cake is buttocks for the people, not bollocks, although are bollocks buttocks? I don't know. <laughs> you just got a mature rating in UK, by the way. <laughs> if any of those words were supposed to have a U, but didn't, I did say them with a U. <laughs> Martin then goes on and says, oh, those costumes in the Robin feature. Pants, every one of them. <laughs> I don't know what that means either. <laughs> <laughs> the Dan Atkins spotlight was one of the best yet. I loved hearing about the rivalry with Jim Steranko. Thanks, Martin. I thought that was pretty cool, too. Martin continues, that Batgirl nickname, Dominoed Daredal, confused the heck out of me as a kid. This is me, Sean. I agree with you there, Martin. I agree with I you 100%. I didn't understand that either. Martin says, she wasn't a spot-themed character. Then I found out what a domino mask was, something Barbara Gordon had actually never worn. As for the Sino Superman, do we know if Gene Luen Yang read these stories as a kid? was inspired to create a new Superman Kong Keenan, whose powers were gained via a government Superman of China project? Cool idea, Martin. It may very well have been. It's amazing how poor the art is on the second Batman story, given it's by Jim Starlin and P. Craig Russell. The figure work is just awful at times, such as a tiny-headed Thomas Wayne on page 7, and Commissioner Gordon wearing the most unconvincing glasses this side of a Luke McDonald character. This story's a bit dull, too. I liked the and that story, Kirk was looking like himself again rather than some sweaty 70s sex god. And that's a good thing, to summarize. Regarding Gabriel's horn and the most 70s moment, I got the fear of flying reference. Naughty. DC writers like to sneak in inappropriate references. Remember how the cheeky documentary I Am Curious Yellow birthed the Lois Lane classic I Am Curious Black? All in all, this isn't a great issue, but it did give us another great podcast, which is nice. 
Thanks, Martin. Fat Cousin Rodney Trainum drops by. Fat Cousin's another great podcast. Paul, you know you wouldn't have gotten sick if you ate Zagnuts. Just saying. All I brought this time for the reunion is Christmas punch. I don't care if it's out of season. Everyone needs that extra sugar rush from the pineapple juice and ginger ale. Just keep Cousin Jolene from licking the punch bowl and everything will be fine. On to detective number 41. I recalled seeing this in an ad and I wanted to get this issue. The problem was I was first aware of the book in 1986, eight years after it's released. So I spent years looking for this book among the many I had to find to collect as many Batman and Detective Comics issues as I could. I remember actually trying to draw the cover inside a notebook I once had and trying to recreate the stories the cover depicted. I have to admit, the notebook featuring the stick-figured recreation of Detective 481 cover and the crudely created stories I crafted is lost in a big landfill somewhere. Ah, to wait in bags and boards of garbage to find that notebook. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever do that. That was a great story, though. That was cool, Rodney. Thanks for sharing. Back to Rodney. Although there were plot holes in Ticket to Tragedy, I enjoyed the O'Neill story more than Murder in the Night. I think it had the mystery hook that I enjoyed immensely. Marshall Rogers' art was, of course, fantastic, but one can tell Terry Austin was not the inker. Austin's inks made Rogers' pencil art a little cleaner. That doesn't take away from the way Rogers draws the human form and the positions he places the characters in in each panel. Rogers knew exactly where to put Batman and other supporting characters and objects in every panel he drew. Those are some of the reasons I put Marshall Rogers in my top five Batman artists of all time. The Robin story was overshadowed by the garish new costumes and the Batgirl story. Ugh, not a fan of this story. Not a fan of Don Heck. End of story. As for Man Bat, I thought it was enjoyable. I think it was a good thing that Kirk and Jason didn't find Snookums at Studio 54. One might never have found Snookums unless she wanted to be found, especially if she was having a little pleasurable fun in a bathroom stall or doing who knows what in the inner sanctum with club owner Steve Rubell and Mick Jagger. I doubt she'd be riding a white horse around the club like Bianca Jagger once did. Now, if that didn't get a mention for the most 70s paragraph, I may get angry like Anita Bryant seeing Cheech and Chong use an orange for a bong. Okay, Rodney, you win for 70s, even though I don't get most of the references, but I'm sure Sean got them all. <laughs> I think I got every single one. <laughs> As to Murder in the Night, it was an okay story. I feel I may be the only person who is not a fan of apes in comic books. I think Julie Schwartz completely ignored the pleas from the gleam in my mother's eye that said, no more apes in comics. Seriously, the story of a former military felon seeking revenge on those who sold him out seemed intriguing but the great difference in time and wondering how old thomas wayne would have had to been became more important to me than the story itself well that's all i have to say right now thanks for another episode of the batman family reunion now i have to keep jolene from sticking her head in the punch bowl no one knows where that tongue has been next up our bat supervisor rob kelly comes by to check up on us chris is right the bat copter was a rare miss by nego it looks like one of those cars shaped like a football helmet that sports <laughs> mascots would use to drive onto the field. I had to read that sentence phonetically because I, did, I didn't understand it. <laughs> I can't give Sean that much grief for not being the hugest Aparo fan. Either someone's art looks good to your eye or it doesn't. But let's keep the Aparo negativity to a minimum. Remember, you guys have your annual network performance review coming up. Carol Fiend should have gotten her own who's who listing. <laughs> I agree. And then our bat cousin and lunch buddy, Brett Young says, Hey, bat cousins. Sorry, I'm late. My train was uncoupled. <laughs> I bought a big bag of pumpkin spice. That's right. All you pumpkin spice loving psychopaths can just sprinkle this stuff on everything. <laughs> Toss some in your drinks and food and desserts. Snort lines of it off the picnic table. Dump some in the duck pond, too. Maybe it'll give them superpowers. Have your fill. Nice to see the family successfully moved over to Detective Comics. 
a solid starting issue. The front and back cover have an interesting modern look with the segmented areas. Batman looks like he just tripped over that <laughs> skull, and Man Bat looks like Nick Nolte's mugshot. But overall, cool art. Lot of Marshall Rogers car waxing on the podcast. And you know what? I get it. I love the architecture. They should have turned Detective Comics Batman stories into a European tour just so Rogers could draw Batman in different countries great stuff. He may be a sweet and fragrant compliment to the tomato-based dishes, but Basil is a real dick for thinking about torching his research. He even tells the attendant exactly what it is and his intention to burn it. I created a way to save many lives, but you poors will never see it. <laughs> Fetch me another GNT. Man, just let the bad guy shoot him. <laughs> it was nice to see the Robin stories get an artist upgrade. Don Newton is great. And I'm actually a little interested to see what the deal is with Raven. Looks like the chief attended the Commissioner Gordon School of letting the costumes handle the heavy work so you can knock off early and get a few drinks before heading home and getting berated by your wife because you're never home and you forgot where you were supposed to meet her friends you hate for dinner downtown at that Italian restaurant that doesn't have your brand of scotch and the waiter always keeps giving you a dirty look when you ask for ketchup but whatever at least you're not getting shot at like Robin. Also, Wolverine is the only hero that can pull off a brown costume. As for the Batgirl story, it's nice to see giant rooms aren't relegated to Kirk and Francine's Manhattan apartment. How big was Barbara's hotel room? There are five people fighting in a hotel room, <laughs> jumping and spinning and flying, and no one even banged their knee on a workspace desk. And oh, that Don Heck artistry. It looks like Senator Cleary smashed through the door using jazz hands. The Man Bat story was fun. It's good to see the Langstroms aren't leaving the baby home alone anymore. <laughs> Finally, Batman is back with some Starlin art. Word is, he got paid more for 16 pages than he did for Endgame. <laughs> Overall, I like Starlin, but he has some quirky aspects to his art. Characters are always doing deep knee bends and nobody seems to know what to do with their hands. Overall, a dark and gritty story, especially when... Colonel Sanders showed Batman the dismembered victim? That's a horrified expression you don't usually see from Batman. Also, it was great hearing the Bat Family historian Chris Franklin on the show. He's always a fountain of knowledge. Well, gotta run. Bat Cousin Sean is trying to pay for lunch by waving his Old Navy card <laughs> over the mustard bottle. So I have to show him how to use a credit card again. See you at the next reunion. <laughs> For everyone except the five people who were at the table. <laughs> so Brett met us at Baltimore Comic Con and we posted this on Twitter and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And for whatever reason, I guess it was my first day using credit card technology because <laughs> I could not get my card. To go. And I have tap to pay. I have a chip. I have everything. <laughs> I could not pay for my own at all. Like I kept trying and trying and trying. So thank God Brett got it to work because I couldn't do it. <laughs> oh, let's move on. Thanks everybody for the comments on Detective 481. As I mentioned, I wanted to at least acknowledge the folks who commented on the FW Presents episode on the Maze Agency that dropped a few weeks ago. It was super fun. I loved rereading those stories. I highly recommend it to any aspiring detectives out there. Huh? huh? See what I did there, Sean? <laughs> anyway, we had the following people comment on that show at our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. Matt Saroyce loves Fair Play Mysteries and says he's going to be doing some back issue diving for Maze Agency, which is a tremendous compliment. Thanks, Matt, and have fun. Good luck. Gene Hendricks recommended Blackjack Justice on the Canadian show Decoder Ring Theater for those who like Maze Agency. Robert Smith 
Asked us if it was a coincidence that the episode dropped on Agatha Christie's birthday. Amazingly, yes, Robert. <laughs> it wasn't a total coincidence. Martin Gray chastised us a bit for talking about how hot Jen was as drawn by Adam Hughes without giving equal time to how cute Gabe is. Good point, Martin. I am properly chagrined. He and I also traded comments about Anthony Horowitz's Magpie Murders and Hawthorne Mysteries, both of which are fantastic reads. David Ace Gutierrez pointed out that the mystery genre is really missing from comics today and wanted to thank us for spotlighting the Maze Agency. You're welcome, David. Thanks for listening. Bucky749 went so far as to order the trade paperback and some issues of Maze Agency in order to review them for his YouTube channel. Have fun doing that, Buck. And finally, Eric pointed out that he had Maze Agency when it came out, but more importantly, that the pinup we discussed at length from issue eight had originally appeared in black and white in the Amazing Heroes swimsuit issue, and he got that one signed by Adam Hughes in 1992. He also posted that image on his Twitter page and included a link. Thanks again for everybody for supporting FW Presents. It was super fun to do that episode. So if you hadn't had a chance yet, give it a listen. Now we're going to acknowledge our Bat Family members who shared our podcast on social media. And this is a combination of the Facebook post, the regular show, Twitter post, and also the Baltimore Comic Con picture that we sent up. So we'd like to thank Tall Tower, Irredeemable Shag, Michael Thomas, Rodney Trainum, Brian Shufo, JMT Prod for Productions, Kalish Wallamoki, and I'm sure I got that 100% right. Tim Price, the Podcrasher, and Alan Harvey, Dave's Comics Heroes blog, The Bat Pod, Dr. Pop Culture, Chris, P. Brennan, Jim Ball, Between the Pages blog, Outcasters, BATO podcast, Between the Pages blog, Ward Hill Terry, and the Baltimore Comic Con themselves. Nice. Before we sign off, as most of our listeners know, Running the Fire and Water Podcast Network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you are enjoying what you hear on this show or any of the other shows, please consider becoming a patron. We are not all Bruce Wayne, but any small amount you can give helps defray the cost. And we promise that none of those funds will go towards rebuilding Professor Damier's mind-body transference machine. <laughs> to find out how, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. And thanks. That'll do it for the feedback section. And for episode 482, we want to thank our special guest, Todd Serenbetz, for appearing on this episode. And thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next month for a return to Crime Alley and Bob Rosakis's last Batgirl and Robin stories. 